As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, August 27, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre's off this week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you could subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Did you know the moon landing was a hoax or how those trails of water vapor from planes in the sky contain chemicals that control our minds or how the government adds fluoride to the water to influence our politics? Yes, these conspiracy theories are ridiculous, but chances are that people in your lives believe at least one of the ideas that's not grounded in evidence. Maybe not as ridiculous as the moon landing, but maybe ones that are much more grounded in distrust of the government or even the FDA. And even though I consider myself a hyper-rational person, I still have my superstitions, like wearing the same hat for my hockey team during their home games because it'll help them win. Hasn't really worked in recent times. My rational mind still rules the day, but deep down, I have to admit that I sometimes want to believe in these crazy theories. This week's guest aims to explain why that's so. He posits that most of us fall into two categories, ones that are driven more by their emotions and their gut, and ones that are driven much more by reason. And it's the people who make more decisions based on their emotions that are more easily swayed by the conspiracy theories based on his research. Eric Oliver is a political scientist at the University of Chicago. He researches the psychology of politics, particularly on the politics of science. His forthcoming book is Enchanted America, How Intuition and Reason Divide Our Politics. So let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Eric Oliver. Today's episode is brought to you by Looker. Use Looker to take your analytics to the next level. Looker is a modern analytics platform bringing data-driven decision-making to every level of business. From innovative startups to enterprise-grade businesses, thousands of companies are using Looker in every department to access, analyze, and act on their data. Looker gives you the right tools for the job. Their modern best-of-breed data workflows free up time for higher-value work and has solutions for every department from, cons- from customer support and marketing to product and data science. Looker is built with your security in mind and ensures that your data is safe, secure, and in your control. Companies like Deliveroo, Trivago, TransferWise, Yahoo, and more rely on Looker for their business intelligence needs. Get more from your data with greater efficiency by using Looker. Head to looker.com slash minds today for an exclusive free trial. 
That's looker.com slash minds to get started today. Today's episode was brought to you by Google Play. Did you know that you can download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right, with hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem, which is crucial for a person like me who is a huge Android user. So I can start the audiobook on my phone, seamlessly transition to my car, pick up right where I left off, come back into my living room with my Google Home and pick up once again. It's an amazing ecosystem that allows me to enjoy audiobooks wherever I am. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one over $10 by visiting g.co slash play slash minds. That's g.co slash play slash minds. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Eric Oliver, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. It's great to be here. So conspiracy theories seem to be thriving in this day and age. And I want to start with how prevalent are these quote-unquote conspiracy theories amongst the U.S. population? So we've been doing surveys on the American population for about 12 years now, asking them uh, how much they endorse common and popular conspiracy theories. We usually ask about seven or eight conspiracy theories. And in all of our surveys, we generally find that at least one in two Americans will embrace or endorse or agree with one of these seven or eight prevalent conspiracy theories. And when we're talking about seven or eight prevalent theories, like what kind of stuff are we talking about? We've asked commonly things about, for example, the birther conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not really born in the United States and is not an officially a citizen. We've asked about the 9-11 attacks and the what's called the truther conspiracy theory that the government secretly orchestrated these attacks in order to gin up support for a war in the Middle East. Um, we've asked a, a very another common and popular one is we ask people, do you think that the U.S. Drug Administration is deliberately withholding natural cures for cancer because of secret pressure from the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, typically, around 40 percent of Americans will agree with that conspiracy theory. Forty percent. That's an incredibly high number. That's much higher than I thought it would be. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the percentages agreeing with these various conspiracy theories are quite high. And that was the first thing that really struck us. Uh, when we started doing surveys about this a decade ago, we really weren't expecting numbers to be this high. Uh, we, we thought they'd be closer to, say, you know, somewhere between 5 to 10 percent of the population. But when it comes to, say, for example, the birther conspiracy or the truther conspiracy, the averages tend to be closer to 20 percent. Now, it's not just people believe them, but it must also be how strongly they hold these beliefs, because I, I believe in a lot of things. But some of those things I, I don't. I don't care about as much. So if you ask me if I buy organic food at the market, I probably do, but I don't really believe that organic is that much better for me if you pressure me on it. How strongly do people believe these ideas and does that even matter? The strength of these ideas vary a lot with people. It's I, it's easy for people in a survey to say, yes, I agree with something that it seems vaguely familiar. So let's take, for example, the birther conspiracy theory. A lot of Republicans believed in the birther conspiracy theory, not because they thought necessarily that Barack Obama really was part of some sort of secretive plot, but it was a way of delegitimizing his presidency and reconfirming their prior, their partisan priors. 
And so when we think about conspiracy theories, what they're doing for people, part of what they're doing is reinforcing prior worldviews. And this could be a worldview that's informed by an ideology, or it could be a worldview that's informed by a religious predisposition, or it could be just a worldview of general mistrust and paranoia um, and uh, disenchantment with the political system. Are there any relationships between these beliefs? Because if I believe 9-11 was an inside job, am I more likely to believe that Obama was born in Kenya? Well, we generally find that there are two types of conspiracy theories that clump together. There are the ideological conspiracy theories. And what we find there that those tend to be more polarized. So the 9-11 truth or conspiracy theory tends to be a more liberal conspiracy theory the birther conspiracy theory is a more conservative one, and those you don't see a strong correlation between. Then there are the non-ideological conspiracy theories that are uniformly embraced across the spectrum. And for example, the conspiracy theory about the Food and Drug Administration is one that's held on both sides of the aisle. And those types of conspiracy theories do tend to correlate with the ideological ones. So if I have an ideological conspiracy theory on the right, for example, I'm less likely to to endorse a left-wing conspiracy theory, but I'm probably more likely to endorse a non-ideological one. What are some examples of non-ideological ones? I, I think the the FDA one that you mentioned probably falls in that category. Sure. So uh, conspiracy theories, for example, about uh, fluoride in the water, that this is uh, a campaign from mining companies, a way of dumping phosphate, uh, vapor trails left by airplanes as a program of secret government spraying, um, those are two common non-ideological conspiracy theories. There seems to be a thread in a number of the, the conspiracy theories that you cite that have this, and, and I don't have a better way of putting it, anti-science bend to them. Do you see a pattern with some of these theories that seem to run counter to what what scientific beliefs tend to tell you? Well, one of the things that struck us when we were trying to understand who believed in conspiracy theories and why they believed in conspiracy theories, we started asking people about a lot of other types of beliefs. And one of the biggest predictors of whether or not someone believed in a conspiracy theory was if they had a lot of other supernatural beliefs, and particularly fundamentalist Christian beliefs. And uh, one of the reasons why those two things go together is that we argue that both a lot of supernatural beliefs and mythologies relate to what we would call an intuitive way or intuitive mindset, an intuitive way of understanding the world. And an intuitive way of understanding the world is informed both by emotions. So if I feel afraid, I look for sources of fear in my environment. Um, And then it's a heavy reliance on what psychologists call heuristics. And these are these shortcuts that we use to make judgments about the world. And so a common heuristic, for example, would be uh, what they call a representativeness heuristic. So I see something that looks like a snake, I'm assuming it's going to be dangerous if it has a snake morphology. Or if I see something that looks like a spider, I'm assuming it's going to be dangerous, even if it's not poisonous. And I use that representativeness heuristic. And so what our intuitive minds do is they draw on our emotions. And if we're feeling afraid, they're looking for sources of fear. And then they're looking to placate our fears by grabbing on to those explanations that coincide with our common sense. And our common sense would be these types of heuristics that we use, these judgmental shortcuts we employ. And 
if you look at both mythologies and conspiracy theories, a lot of them employ these same types of heuristics. Um, I think one of the common ones that they both employ is an anthropomorphizing heuristic. So if something is happening in the world, there must be an intentional force that's making it happen. And that's, I think, a much more commonsensical way of understanding things than trying to explain events relative to systematic, dispassionate forces that are probabilistic. Our minds don't do well with conditional probabilities. We do not accept those things easily. We have to get trained into them. Even scientists do not do conditional probabilities habitually. It's something that we really have to learn to do. I, I mean, I think you're touching upon something that is part of our sort of human frailty, if you will. That is a tough thing for humans to to deal with. Uh, just because we're on a rock, like soaring through like a mostly empty cosmos is not is not the most comfortable feeling, I think, for for most humans. Uh, it Just to it, dig down on this, like some of the ideas that you're talking about here, they don't feel new. That distinction has probably existed for the last, you know, hundred, hundred years. Uh, is, is that true? And and if so, what has changed in recent times? So the way we describe this is that uh, our country is not simply divided by ideology or social class or race. We would suggest that it's also divided by worldview. And on one side of this worldview are people who rely heavily on their intuitions. And we label these types of people intuitionist. And on the other side of the spectrum are people we would call rationalist. And they have a worldview that's really something that's become much more common with the Enlightenment or since the Enlightenment. And it's based on reason and logic and deduction. And, you know, ideas are adjudicated in relation to observable facts. Whereas, you know, intuitionists rely on their emotions. They rely on symbols and metaphors. They rely on these heuristics for making sense of the world. And they have what would probably be best described as kind of a more pre-enlightenment mindset. Now, most people have a combination of these two. We're all born as natural intuitionists. And what happens is we get schooled out or, or we either get schooled out of this by learning about rational systems and learning about science and scientific ways of understanding the world, or we are actually in belief systems, like for example, a lot of churches that reinforce our intuitive proclivities. And so this tension has been going on at least since the Enlightenment. And if you look at U.S. political history, for example, there are, there's a long, long trajectory of conspiracy theories that go back really to the country's founding. And you can find historical evidence and you know ideas of secret plots from uh, the British that were there around the time of the Revolution. If you go to the early 19th century, you can have there are big conspiracy theories about uh, the Masons and about the Illuminati and about the Catholic Church. Um, the conspiracy theories go forward. Uh, and in the later 19th century, uh, Jews are oftentimes the targets of conspiracy theories or uh, East Coast capital and banks. Um, and so this this tension is is permeates American history. Talk about who what kind of people have these beliefs, their demographics, their their background. And are we seeing an acceleration of the pace of the spreading of these beliefs? So the types of people who are more likely to rely on their intuitions, and these are the types of people who are also more likely to embrace conspiracy theories, are people who are typically uh, less educated. 
Um, they tend to be at the lower end of the economic spectrum, but it's more because of their financial stress. It's uh, when we ask people both their income and their level of financial anxiety, financial anxiety is a much bigger predictor of the types of people who tend to score high uh, on these intuitionist beliefs. Uh, they tend to be people who are raised in conservative religious traditions. Women tend to be a little bit more intuitionist than men. They tend to be people who have what a lot of social scientists describe as authoritarian child rearing ideas. And so they really like strict uh, parenting and obedient children. And uh, that's oftentimes described as an indicator of an authoritarian personality. Uh, they tend to be people who are what psychologists would also say low in need for cognition, i.e., they're not the type of people who really are interested in explanations for things. They don't like crossword puzzles. They don't like history. They don't like they tend also to rely heavily on their common sense. If you ask them how they make their judgments, they tend to say, well, I go with my gut. They trust their heart more than their head. And so those, that is the, the more or less the demographic profile, although I want to stress that this also extends. You know, we have intuitionists, you know, with PhDs and we have rationalists, you know, who never proceeded past high school. So um, there is noise here, but uh, these are sort of the general trends. It, but what I'm also hearing is that these are things that cross de, uh, our ideological divides, our, our partisan divides. So uh, do we see liberals have this uh, this sort of breakdown just as much as conservatives do, uh, especially those under financial stress, as you said? Right. Well, this is where for us as political scientists, it got very interesting because we find that conservatives are twice as likely to embrace a lot of these intuitionist proclivities as liberals. And this, I think, speaks to a big change in the American political and social climate over the past 50 years. If you go back to the early 1960s, nearly all Americans said that they believed in God and most Americans were very enthusiastic about science. And what we've seen here is a big polarization on those dimensions. We have fewer Americans believing in God now, and we have also fewer Americans believing in science, and those two groups are really separating themselves apart. They're also aligning themselves ideologically. And so you have liberals now who are proclaiming, we believe in science and rejecting prayer in public schools, for example. And on the flip side of that, you have a lot of conservatives who reject evidence about climate change and are also embracing ideas about the forthcoming rapture or the apocalypse. And they think that that's going to be imminent. I'm curious how you measure any of this, because what you're talking about teasing out are pre pretty deeply held beliefs, pretty formative beliefs that I'm not always conscious of in, in terms of, um, of how they affect my daily life. So how do you come to an understanding of where people are in terms of these belief systems? Sure. So what we wanted to do was figure out a way of measuring intuitions without looking at the specific contents of particular beliefs. And so how could we measure when someone is actually drawing on their intuitions when making a particular judgment? And we looked at liter the literature and psychology on magical thinking and magical beliefs, because one of the things that's very interesting about magical beliefs is that they draw on our intuitions. They, they by themselves are reflective of, I think, our deeper psychological processes. And what we discovered from that were two things, one of which was that 
our intuitionists draw on their emotions when making decisions, and that they rely heavily on heuristics, so these innate judgmental shortcuts when making decisions. And so we came up with a series of questions that tried to evoke the reliance on these types of processes. And so we, we asked respondents in surveys a series of paired questions, and we asked them things like, would you rather stab a photograph of your family five times with a sharp knife or stick your hand in a bowl of cockroaches? Or we might ask them, would you rather sleep in laundered pajamas once worn by Charles Manson or pick a nickel off the ground and put it in your mouth? And what we're doing with these types of questions is we're giving people a choice between what would be a symbolic cost, which is i.e. Sort of stabbing a you know, family photo or wearing the pajamas that a bad person once wore versus a tangible cost, which is the you know, hand in the bowl of cockroaches or nickel from the ground in the mouth. And what we find is that people who rely on their intuitions are very, very sensitive to symbolic costs. Even though stabbing a family photo is really only stabbing a piece of paper, for an intuitionist, that's not. It's, it's something that's a very strong emotional act. It, it's, it's very unpleasant for them because they're very, very sensitive to emotional cues. And they're very, very sensitive to symbols. Uh, the same thing with like sleeping in laundered pajamas. It's you know, laundered pajamas are laundered pajamas, but the idea that a bad person had also touched these relates to this fear of contagion. And you can find these same fears in a lot of religious beliefs and magical beliefs. And so what we were trying to do is see those same proclivities, but do them with questions that did not refer to particular belief elements. So I guess the million dollar question is, is how do we bridge the divides between these people? So this is a really hard thing. I think one of the reasons why our country seems so polarized is that we don't simply just have different ideologies that are dividing us. We have different worldviews. And for people who are rationalists, particularly people on the left, but across the spectrum, but who employ a rational frame of, of understanding, when they try to have a conversation with someone who believes in conspiracy theories or who has a lot of supernatural or paranormal beliefs, they can often find themselves very, very frustrated because of an inability to just have a common frame of reference. And part of what we're hoping to do in this research is try to understand ways of bridging that difference. And one of the ways that we think is might be effective is with empathy. And I'll give you an example of with my son. When he was young, one night he was screaming that there was a monster in the closet. And I came in and I opened the closet door and I said, look, there's no monster. I pointed there. I was trying to reason with him through that, you know, there was no monster in the closet. And he turned it and he looked at me and he said, well, you know, if there's no monster in the closet, then why am I afraid? And I was like, well, you know, you got me there, pal. Uh, that was a great retort. And what I realized what he wanted me to do was validate his emotional experience. And I think the first way to communicate to communicate across this mindset of this this gap is acknowledging that people who are embracing conspiracy theories or supernatural or paranormal beliefs that they are doing so from an emotional need and for them it has an emotional validity and i think the first step is to acknowledge that emotional reality for those people and when you do that, then there may be some ability to find a better way of communication. But the first step really does seem to be is to understand that they are coming from a place where they have emotional needs and their beliefs are really fulfilling emotional needs. Whereas 
someone who's a more rationalist person, we think maybe our beliefs are there to structure or, or serve within a, a bigger framework of how the world operates. And it's it, it comes from very, two very, very different places. And figuring out a way to come to a common place is probably the first step. And I think it's probably more incumbent on people on the, the rationalist side to try to understand the emotional side. And I think for intuitionists, it's maybe to let go of that and appreciate that, you know, reasoned analysis oftentimes points to a more correct answer. What you're talking about is both a, a, a simple idea because it's, you know, a, a expressing empathy to each other is, has been something that humans have been doing for thousands of years, but it's also incredibly hard to do at the same time. And, and I sort of, as you were talking, just sat in the example of how we've struggled with uh, parents that are, aren't vaccinating and how we know that pouring more information upon them, that knowledge is not, it tends to harden their views. And what you're suggesting might be a, a different approach where scientists and communicators actually spend time uh, learning and understanding the the pain, the fear that is that tends to result in this move towards not vaccinating their children. Uh, how urgent is this shift that you think needs to happen um, for the rationalist side? Uh, because there is this feeling out there that conspiracy theories seem to be accelerating. Well, I would say, I don't know if conspiracy theories are accelerating. What is accelerating are means and mechanisms for understanding conspiracy theories, or disseminating conspiracy theories. So I first got interested in this in the 1990s when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, and it was because I met some guy in the street and he was handing out leaflets with his conspiracy theory on it. You know, today this guy probably has a website or 20,000 Twitter followers or something like that. So what we've really seen is a, is a, a change in ways of disseminating these kind of transgressive ideas. So I'm not sure that conspiracy theories themselves are, are increasing. It's just they're, they're easier to access than they were before. So let me back up on my assumption then. How urgent is the need to to address this problem? Well, I think the bigger urgency comes in our political climate right now where reason and facts are under siege. And you have to understand a liberal democracy is a product of the Enlightenment. And it's predicated on notions of deliberation and compromise and perspective and fact. And when you have a set of political, uh, when you when you have a, a political movement that it is not based on those principles, but in fact is based on intuition and emotion, it's very difficult to meet basic requirements of democracy. And I think democratic institutions become threatened. And that to me is the bigger challenge for us right now, because conservatism in the United States has really become much more of an intuitionist movement. Rationalist conservatives are in the political wilderness right now. And the idea of having rational discourse and rational debate over policy goals and policy analysis is getting precluded by a political movement that really has little, little or no interest in reasoned discussion and analysis. So let's say we're talking five years from now, and we spent the last five years investing in, the, in this idea of rationalists uh, spending much more time uh, trying to emotionally connect with uh, with these intuitionists. 
how will we know? What measures will we look for to show that the world is changing? Well, as a political scientist, we typically look ultimately the for changes in voting behavior and political outcomes. And, you know, one thing, for example, is do we see those constituencies, for example, whose normal policy preferences would align with one side? Do we see them coming back to what might be their natural political home because the elites on that side are, are better able to communicate with them? And one of the, if we think of like, for example, a lot of what is driving, I think, our current political climate is a lot of economic anxiety. And there's been a lot of displacement and erosion of the middle class. And to whatever extent we as a country can meet or placate that economic anxiety, and this can be through social programs, this can be through economic growth, this can be through economic development. Those are probably going to be the root causes of where people are migrating in terms of their worldviews. And the, the more we can address those types of issues, I think the better we are at, at avoiding what might be the sort of more authoritarian or totalitarian impulses that come from a more intuitionist mindset. At the risk of embracing too much of an intuitionist mindset for this conversation, do you believe we can make progress on this? I'm an optimist. And so, yeah, <laughs> I kind of have to believe. If, if not, I, I, I'm not sure. But um, this is, um, I guess I'll put it this way. I also, as, as, as dispirited as I sometimes get about this, I have a lot of faith in Americans and our political institutions and the strength of our civic and political institutions. And even though rationalists are a minority in this country, I think there are probably about twice as many intuitionists as there are for as rationalists. Um, that's probably always been the case. And our country has progressed and we've seen you know, tremendous social progress over the past 200 years, I think largely as a consequence of steady and patient work on, the, on, on behalf of sort of a more rationalist approach to trying to understand social and environmental and economic problems. Hey, I'm always one for ending on an optimistic note. Eric Oliver, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Sure. Thank you so much. It's been great. I have to admit, after listening to Eric and exploring all the ways that it that people fall into these traps and how quickly they can sped through technology, I was a little disheartened. Uh, but there is something to this idea that the way through this, the way past all of this, is just to spend more time with each other with a sense of empathy, a, a sense of understanding that maybe that a little kindness is the way for us to overcome uh, the divides. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Weil, Clark Lingren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Awald, Kyle Rayhalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yuchi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter and on Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your conspiracy theory grounded in evidence, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm Kishore Hari, your host. 
Indre will be back with an all-new interview next week. See you then. Today's episode was brought to you by American Innovations. I want to tell you about a science podcast that I think you're going to love called American Innovations. It comes from popular science author Stephen Johnson and tells of the science behind some of the greatest innovations of the last century, as well as the people and places that led to those aha moments. The newest episode is all about the early development of AI and how scientists were able to put human intelligence into a machine, starting with chess. Subscribe to American Innovations wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.